People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Uma Naidu, MD, is a Harvard-trained, board-certified psychiatrist, professional chef, and nutrition specialist. She's the Director of Nutritional and Lifestyle Psychiatry at Mass General Hospital, where she consults on nutritional interventions for the psychiatrically and medically ill, and is Director of Nutritional Psychiatry at the Mass General Hospital Academy. She also has a private practice and teaches at the Cambridge School of Culinary Arts. Her wonderful book, This Is Your Brain on Food, is brilliant, informative, and a pleasure to read. Welcome to Health Gig, Dr. Naidu. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. We're so excited to have you. And Trisha and I are just fascinated by your life and all of your different talents and career paths. And so we first want to ask you, how did you get into the fascinating field of nutritional psychiatry? I thought about that a lot. And, you know, I wish I could say that I had some grand plan in life, but I really didn't. Hindsight is somewhat 2020 here. But what I can say is that I think my love for food and nutrition and the sciences, especially medical health, began in my childhood. I grew up in a large South Asian family and we were surrounded by lots of food, lots of family meals. I skipped out of preschool and instead, when my mom was studying in medical school, spent the daytime with my grandmother, to whom my book is dedicated. She would, you know, pick fresh vegetables in the garden and we'd prepare meals. And I really enjoyed my time with her. But at the same time, my family had several allopathic medical doctors and a few Ayurvedic practitioners. So that sort of mind-body connection was something I grew up around. My grandparents taught me to meditate and taught me about yoga and that type of stuff. And I think I brought that forward with me when I came to psychiatry. And I also, coming from a large South Asian family, didn't need to cook because there were always mothers and grandmothers and aunts in the kitchen who could spoil me and I could hang around and taste the food. But I was always around food. So when I moved away to study was my journey into cooking. And I found that I loved spices and I found that cooking was just almost a creative space for me to relax and enjoy almost decompress my day, but enjoy the flavors and savor the food. So that grew to have a lot of meaning. And when I learned about psychiatric medications, I felt that they were strong, they were life-saving for many people, but they came with serious side effects and that there needed to be more tools in the toolkit for people who were prescribed medications. And I started to incorporate those questions around lifestyle and what someone was eating into my evaluations. As I loved nutrition more. I sort of followed the paths of things that I loved to do. and was very fortunate under good mentorship that I was able to form this clinic at Mass General in nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry, where I see patients for this reason based on their, their mental health or their mental fitness, as I like to call it these days, because not everyone has a set diagnosis. They might just not be feeling great. That's the short version. And I will just say that my trip to culinary school was entirely because Julia Child was my food hero. And in my early days in Boston, when I was studying, I couldn't afford a cable TV. So she was on public television, the show called The French Chef. And that really helped me as a young cook, sort of just getting confidence in the kitchen and finding some joy in it as well. And so when I found out, when I worked through her cookbooks and read about her life and I realized that she did this later in life, I thought, why not me? You know, it was very fortunate that there was a way in which 
cooking and the culinary arts really can help my patients because it's easy then to translate something for them that they can enjoy and actually make in a healthy manner. So that's really how I came to this nexus of my work. As you were explaining that, this is something that is so simple, but yet so cutting edge. This idea that what we put into our mouths, what we, how we nourish ourselves actually makes a difference to our entire body. And it's just fascinating that you really, you're out front on that with this discussion. Do you find that people are accepting it or how is it being received? I think that so far I've had very positive responses to it from the general public. It's interesting because, you know, social media is not something I was accustomed to. And because my book was launched during this pandemic, I had no other means of sharing the book with bookstores being closed and television shows not necessarily airing other segments. But long and short of it is it gave me an understanding that there was a different way to approach this and a wider audience that could be reached. Being a physician, I was used to this one-to-one connection with people, which I still enjoy. But I think that taught me that there's a bigger message for more people. And the response has been astounding. People are so hungry for more information about how to feel better because they know that there are limitations around medications and treatments. And people sometimes are looking for a more natural way to include in their lifestyle. But that along with the fact that things like type 2 diabetes on the rise, obesity is on the rise, so many Americans, about 88% have some abnormality in their metabolic profiles. It's become important that we do bring this into the conversation. I think that what has not happened before, Tricia, is that, you know, there are organizations overseas that say study, do some research in the area. There are people who talk about it, but no one had actually put together the research arm and the clinical arm in a book and made it for the public, you know, in a way that people could take away tips to start today, to start to eat more fiber, start to cut back on a nutrient or a food that they didn't realize was worsening a certain condition. And I think that in that way, people have really embraced it. And I, I've been very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. So are mental disorders, can they actually be caused by bad diet, like this standard American diet or just bad foods? I think that the correlation that I find is that, for example, as the standard American diet has continued, we know that there's been an increase in the rate of childhood obesity. There's been an increase in the rate of certain childhood mental health conditions. And it's hard to not try to make that correlation that it is including the food that we're eating. And some of that comes from how food evolved in the country with things like high fructose corn syrup being added to so many foods, farming being industrialized and there being glyphosates and other unfortunate chemicals added that are naturally just part of our food system now. So it would be hard to say that there isn't a connection. And I personally think that our food system is definitely related to how illnesses have started to emerge. That being said, Many of the mental illnesses have a multifactorial basis. Some of it could be psychosocial, some of it could be environmental, some of it could be genetic. But I do think that food in my research and understanding has played a very big part. And I think that the more we can correct from the standard American diet, even if one or two healthy choices every single time can help all of us, especially our metabolic health. Uh Are mental disorders can you say they're caused by bad diets? I think there's a correlation. I don't think that we're at a point where we can say they actually cause the mental illnesses or diagnoses. And that being said, in psychiatric disorders, you know, we work on the system of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 
which is the DSM-5. And, you know, the unfortunate thing in psychiatry and mental health is we don't have a tissue diagnosis. You know, if you have a pneumonia, you have a cough, your doctor will check your sputum or he'll do a chest x-ray. That really doesn't exist in mental health. So, you know, I think it's something that I do think is lacking. And I think that's where the excitement around the gut microbiome and all the MRI imaging studies that people have done, those tend to be a little bit more informative of cause and effect. But do I think that the diet, the added sugars, the processed vegetable oils, refined grains have contributed? Absolutely. You know, things that we usually would think of as being related to added levels of obesity or say type 2 diabetes. Those added refined sugar studies have actually connected them to worsening symptoms of depression, worsening symptoms of anxiety. And I think it's hard to say they actually are the exact cause, but I think research is ongoing in that area. You mentioned the gut. Can you talk about the connection between the brain and the gut and why we call the gut the second brain? The gut and brain are not close by in the body, but they arise from the exact same cells in the developing embryo. And then these two organs spread apart in the body and then are connected by the 10th cranial nerve called the vagus nerve. And I like to call the vagus nerve a two-way superhighway because it works 24-7, 365 days a year, and it allows for two-way bidirectional connection between both the gut and brain and the brain and gut. When people understand that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI medications such as Prozac and Zoloft and many others, really are trying to make an impact on serotonin, the happiness hormone, but that 90 to 95% of those receptors are actually in the gut it helps people understand that so much is going on in that area of the gut. And also for, for the times we're in, you know, more than 70% of our immune system is in the gut. So it's important for people to understand that the gut is an important organ. It really is called the second brain, but it's also kind of modulating things like the immune system, your hormones, circadian rhythm, sleep, mental health, digestion, all of these things. You know, there's so many functions that it performs. And therefore, it's important to keep that balance in the gut microbiome. And food is one of the very easy things that we can either do in a not-so-great way and start to set up for inflammation and disease, or we can try to tweak and improve and start to feel better. What is the gut exactly? So the gut is basically the small intestine and the large intestine is how we would have learned about it in school. The largest piece is the colon, and the small intestine is many, many feet of the gut system. So both of those organs really make up what we consider to be the gut. Now, inside of the gut are contained microscopic microbes of different kinds, largely bacteria, but they're about five different kinds. And they live there really to help us, but they can also harm us because along with the good bacteria or microbes inside of the many, many feet of small intestine and then the colon or the large intestine are these microbes. If you were to put them together, there are about 39 odd trillion of them. If you would put them together, they would probably be the size of a small avocado, small to medium avocado. But they actually are living along that lining throughout the area. And you know how we eat, becomes important because it really impacts whether the good microbes thrive and can help us and function for us, or if we eat sort of poor choices in terms of our diet, then the bad microbes thrive and you have a setup for dysbiosis or inflammation and conditions like leaky gut start to happen. So can you talk about antibiotics and probiotics and the impact they have on the gut? So antibiotics are used to, say, treat an infection somewhere in your body. 
they basically contain antimicrobial agents, which are there to kill whatever bug it is. Say you have a, a bad cough or bronchitis, a guest infection, and pneumonia. But what also happens is they kill off the good guys because they are strong and they're powerful, and they therefore start to deplete or kill off the good bacteria that also exist. So antibiotics over time, if you need them for different infections, they can disrupt the gut because they're killing off those good microbes that are there to help us. And that becomes one of the concerns about overuse of antibiotics. Of course, someone should take an antibiotic when you need it. But overuse has, in the opinion of many of the doctors that I speak to, and in my opinion, has really disrupted that gut, the synergy of the gut, because we overuse antibiotics. Now, probiotics are a different thing. Probiotics can be a supplement. They basically bring back live active bacterial cultures to the gut that help the colony of microbes in the gut, the army there that's there to really help us. You can also obtain the equivalent of a probiotic from fermented foods. So it could be yogurt with active cultures. I always say get the unsweetened kind because the added sugars, the fruited type are not helpful for you. Or it could be fermented foods, kimchi, miso, natto, kefir, kombucha, you know, sauerkraut, all of those can bring back a life yes. bacteria to your gut, which actually build on the good microbes in your gut. And that's the difference. And that's the difference. Got it. Because you hear so much about that. But I think what you're saying is you can get it in your food and that then brings the balance back to your gut. That's right. Tell us about your journey and your diagnosis. Tell us about that. I had this opportunity years ago to start my own clinic and it was a very exciting time. I was feeling, you know, otherwise healthy and well and unexpectedly found a lump in my left breast. And I was very shocked at the moment that it happened. And it was especially shocked because I was feeling well. You know, it was this instantaneous sort of thought and feeling that something is wrong. I sort of knew without any other fact at the moment that it was malignant. And I also simultaneously had this feeling pass over me that I would be okay. So it was sort of a mixed moment. But I didn't realize that I would need to put into practice the meaning of nutritional psychiatry. You know, it's very easy to be on the other side of a prescription. So when you're writing prescriptions, you hand it to someone and you say, well, take the medication somehow. But when you're on the other side of receiving a prescription, it can be very hard. It was very hard for me because I know the side effects of the medications I was facing. Given that I have access to, in Boston, I was very blessed to have access to excellent medical care. I went from lump to first treatment at lightning speed. So there's a way in which my mind hadn't caught up. So on the first day of my treatment, I found myself really anxious, really almost unhinged, feeling worried about side effects, knowing what medications. And it was difficult for me because that was not my usual self. This really caught me by surprise. So I was getting ready for my treatment and having my morning sort of turmeric tea that I used to make with my grandmother. I was standing there anxious and the kettle shut off. A light bulb sort of went off in my head at that moment because I thought, you know, here I am, I'm standing all worried. And yet every single day, I talk to people all the time about how they should eat, what they could do. Why am I not bringing this to myself? I think it was really largely that I was, you know, I was trying to eat healthy. But in that week of diagnosis and testing one test to the other, I sort of lost track of all of this. And I realized that I just needed to embrace that and lean into the things that I knew. And I think that that was a big turning point for me in terms of how I was able to tolerate my treatment. I had virtually no side effects. My doctors would ask me every single week, what are you eating? We want to know what it is. You're doing so well and we're so happy. And, you know, treatment is treatment. You go through the stages and the phases and that is hard. 
but I didn't suffer those side effects that many people do. And I really do credit that to being so careful about just including those foods that were good, including the spices, cutting back on the not so great foods. But then, you know, I also just allowed myself to not be restricted. And if I felt like eating a scoop of ice cream, I had it. I didn't restrict myself. But at the same time, what I found is that my body was really responding to those good, healthy foods, almost in a way that was different. So I, I really embraced that. And I think it was one of the things that helped me through treatments. And I think, you know, it was an unexpected lesson. Mm-hmm. I wasn't prepared for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but when it happened, I felt grateful that I could live that experience because now when I make a recommendation, I know what it feels like to be both provide the advice, but also receive the advice. How important is it to embrace lifestyle changes when you're going through a cancer or in general? The way that I developed the model of treatment I use in nutritional psychiatry is that it embraces those different forms of care. It's really a holistic, integrated, and functional model. So whatever form of spirituality you practice, or maybe you don't, but you believe in something that for you has meaning, it really is about drawing those things close to you and using the strength of whether it's meditation, yoga, tai chi, or you know forms of exercise that you like, all of that in to improving how you feel now. You know, there was a study done last year that looked at pranayama, which is breathing techniques in yoga. And it showed not only improvement in the cardiac status, but also improvements in anxiety and depression. Mm. And you have an Ayurvedic background as well. Trisha and I, we love that tradition. But anyhow, how does that factor into your work and into your life? I guess for me, you know, because I went to allopathic medical school, but I had these family members, right, who practiced Ayurveda. I think it's sort of in the spirit of what I do. So if someone comes in and says, you know, I am this body type and I want to embrace these foods, I'll work with them around it. I think that it's important to meet people where they're at. My recommendations are not based in Ayurveda, but they're all part of the whole, right? If someone has a body type and they want to eat certain foods or they want to embrace certain exercises or they need to do certain things to improve their digestion or whatever it is, that can all be incorporated. So I think it's really no longer one size fits all. If anything, everything is becoming so much more bio-individual and personalized. So I will just tweak what they need to meet their condition and how they're feeling. Can you tell everybody what Ayurveda medicine or Ayurveda lifestyle is and the sort of a little bit of the history of it? It's kind of functional medicine, right? <laughs> it's interesting that functional medicine has certainly embraced good and positive aspects of it. And I think that, you know, it's based in ancient tradition. It's the use of really understanding different body types, understanding how people digest food based on those body types. It's really how do you almost use the science of Ayurveda for healing? and for really holistic care of your body, mind, and soul. You know, I think that there are many wonderful centers that offer these types of practices and even places that even teach coaches to help people learn Ayurvedic medicine in a different way. But I think it's important to embrace these traditions because people have an interest. And my feeling is something that will heal you is something you should be doing. It starts with belief, right? So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So your book, we love very much, which is called This Is Your Brain on Food. And how do you want people to use the book? I mean, it's structured under each mental situation. So tell us how you want people to use this wonderful book. 
This is a great question, Dara. So when I wrote the book, and I didn't expect it to be released during a pandemic. So with bookstores closed, TV shows shut down, <laughs> and, you know, basically the internet and social media left. I was driven to social media, is what I like to jokingly say. But in reality, what it also taught me was something very important. It really became a guide for people that were looking to feel emotionally well. And guess what? People were really quarantined. More people had to be cooking at home than they might have been wanting to because of just lifestyle changes that happened with the pandemic. So I really thought more deeply about it and realized that even though I had to use categories just to describe the different conditions in mental well-being, it really didn't mean that someone had to have a diagnosis to use the book. They could be feeling kind of a little down with all of the restrictions and the uncertainty. They could be feeling more anxious. They could be sleeping poorly. I found people were getting back to me and saying, oh, I'm reading about insomnia and I'm eating the foods that you talked about and I'm practicing this and I'm trying this recipe. And it really became a guide to feel emotionally fit. And rather than worry about one diagnosis or another, people who say had symptoms could look at the book and say, oh, these are the foods I need to watch out for, but these are the foods I can embrace. I found that families and friends were sharing it with each other saying, well, I need this chapter and you need a little bit of the help from there. So from writing it, it really became a guide for improving mental fitness. And it's something that has become so relevant during the pandemic with the teenage suicide rate being extremely high with depression, anxiety, insomnia, substance abuse, and abuse in general, all on the increase during the pandemic. And that's what statistics have told us. It just becomes important to have ways that you can start to heal yourself or start to embrace feeling better because it's so hard for people. My hope is that they will continue to use it in that way because a lifestyle change through food can be done right now today. You know, you could start eating more vegetables. You could do just one thing that starts your health journey in a better way. You really are the trifecta. You're a nutritional psychiatrist who's a culinary chef. I mean, you are walking the walk here in your book and the recipes that you recommend are so beautiful because you can tell that it's from someone who's studied culinary arts. So you address depression and anxiety at the beginning of your book. I mean, over 40 million adults, 18 and older, struggle with some kind of anxiety. Can you talk about anxiety and depression and give us an example of how you go through those conditions and what you recommend? So I'll start with anxiety because I think a lot of people are struggling with a certain level of stress right now, and the two seem to be interchangeable at times. Years ago, well before the pandemic, I treated a young woman who walked into my office saying for the first time in her life she had panic attacks. She asked me for a prescription and she was referred by her gastroenterologist. So what I uncovered was that she'd never experienced anxiety before, but 18 months prior to seeing me, she had changed her job and gotten promoted. The promotion had taken her to basically travel almost every week. So from eating meals at home, walking her dog, exercising, talking to friends, having a sort of a regular life and doing well at work. She was suddenly in this great advancement at work, but was traveling, eating in airports, eating on airplanes, arriving late at hotels, having a glass of wine, having two glasses of wine at work meetings, because she was socializing so much more for networking purposes. And she was eating, you know, bar snacks out of the fridge when she arrived at a hotel. And everything had really changed. So what actually happened was her gut was very disrupted. She was eating all sorts of junk foods, processed foods that she wasn't really eating in the past. 
Basically, when your gut is disrupted and you develop dysbiosis or an imbalance in your gut, the feedback loop, because of that connection between the brain and gut, is that you get brain inflammation, you can get either new symptoms, as she did, or with other people, an uptick of symptoms that they already have. So the way that we worked with her was to start to correct her diet to what she had been eating before by her packing healthy snacks when she traveled, stopping at a supermarket when she arrived somewhere and buying healthy snacks for the fridge in her hotel instead of eating the candy and the cookies that were in the fridge or having that extra glass of wine. She would purchase bottled water. She would pack healthy snacks, pack things for breakfast that were better options. And that way she could supplement her meals. She would go out to the work dinners, but she would have less wine and she would eat a healthy choice at the dinner, exercising more wherever she was. She, over time, was able to really correct her diet and improve and she was functioning. And so she didn't need a medication. She was able to tolerate the slow and steady changes by cutting out the processed food, the junk foods, the processed vegetable oils, the artificial sweeteners. So it took time, but she was much better. She returned to that normal level of functioning in terms of no anxiety and feeling healthy again and was able to avoid a medication, but she was also functioning. She was going to work and not struggling in that way. She was having anxiety. That was how we corrected the anxiety. Then we built back the foods that you should embrace you know, for anxiety. With someone with depression, you really have to understand how bad the depression is because some people might just be feeling blue during the pandemic, just not feeling themselves, not feeling great. But again, you could use food. I think it's important to know where those hidden things are that worsen depression, the added and refined sugars. You know, people mistake the fact that savory foods, ketchup, pasta sauces, salad dressings have a ton of sugar. Sugar has been shown to not only have deleterious brain effects, to worsen depression. So if you're struggling with depression, those cookies or ice cream are not helping you. They're actually worsening things for you. So understanding the foods to keep away or replace, and then building in the things like omega-3 fatty acids from wild-caught seafood or from plant-based sources that really help bring back good antidepressant-boosting ingredients to your brain. Then spices like turmeric or saffron. Saffron can be a supplement. These have actually been shown to help depression. And simple things, probiotic foods, fermented foods, fiber, all of these really bring back nutrients for your gut microbiome that help you rebuild, help you heal any imbalance of the gut, but start to help those bacteria really thrive because you're feeding them fiber from vegetables, fruit, beans, nuts, seeds, legumes, things like that. With those, you're also bringing back antioxidants, polyphenols, anti-inflammatory aspects to the food, and really helping to heal the gut that provide nutrients to your body. Along with the macronutrients that you provide, you also get the great electrolytes that your body needs, the magnesium, the zinc, the vitamin Bs, all of those involved in so many biochemical reactions and enzyme reactions related to how brain chemicals are formed. It's no longer eat a healthy salad and you'll feel better. It's eat a healthy salad because those leafy greens contain folate. The low folate level is associated with depression. So bringing back foods with folate becomes important. The role of stress and digestion is huge. Do you want to talk about that for just a minute? When we're stressed in that way, it sets off the stress hormone cortisol. And cortisol really it disrupts things in the gut. Essentially, just like food and nutrition impact the digestion and the breakdown products in the gut, so does stress. What ends up happening is you have just a cascade of more toxic substances being formed from digestion. 
what you really want is the good substances to form that get absorbed into the blood and help us with our immunity, with our hormone levels, with our mental well-being, with our physical well-being. But what happens is you get substances formed which really lead to inflammation, and that's where the loop is problematic. And that's why meditation and different kinds of ways to... To calm down the system becomes super important. Whether it's a breathing exercise, you know, whether it's a relaxation exercise, whether it's listening to an app with calming music, maybe it's just listening to a playlist that calms you or a walk in nature. You know, 10 minutes of sunlight brings you 80% of your requirement of vitamin D from direct sunlight. And vitamin D is associated with improvement in mood if you're getting enough of it. So in some parts of the country, like where I live in the far Northeast, we often have to supplement vitamin D because of sunlight levels. So, you know, those things, just being in nature helps people feel better. So you also include a chapter on the libido. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to include this, not only is it because our sexual health is so important to our mental health, but also the fact that there are side effects of certain medications that lower libido in mental health. So I wanted to be careful to make sure that individuals having those side effects also had options. Turns out that there's some surprising foods that actually boost oxytocin. One of them is dark chocolate and dark chocolate, extra dark chocolate. I usually like more than 80% or so, supernatural, contains serotonin, contains magnesium, is, is a fermented food and is actually excellent for our libido. So add those in. It's also important to have that glass of red wine. And then nuts like pistachios, almonds, and walnuts were found to be helpful. And surprisingly, apples and pomegranate juice, as well as avocados. So, you know, including those foods and spices such as saffron and fenugreek, if you're making a savory dish, will really help to improve how you're feeling over time. But then also to be careful about the amount of alcohol you're drinking, to be aware of cookware that you're using because there's a, an unfortunate substance used in nonstick cookware and certain food packaging, PFOA, that can be a problem and just be wary and watch out for those. Oh my God, you are so inspirational and we've learned so much in this such short period of time. Maybe we can have you back on to continue the conversation. I'd love, to. I'd love that. Thank you so much. Just incredible. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Trisha. I appreciate thank it. You, thank you, Dr. Nadu, so thank much. Thank you, Dora. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.